we could put teachers more in control of their own destiny. I don't know when we're going to get a government that's got the guts to do that because, you know, education ministers want to make a name for themselves. They want to have more power, not less. But that's really holding everybody back because we, we, we do have this, you know, culture of compliance. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, my fathomless friends, and welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. This is Mr. Pickles, the podcast mascot. Say hello, Mr. Pickles. Hello. He's brought you his Redox bottle, which is his most prized possession. This is the first episode that we're going to release both as a video as well as on audio. So for those fans of learning styles among you, and that theory has many vocal advocates, as you may have noticed, everyone loves it to bits. The visual learners among you can head over to YouTube if you're not there already. Auditory learners can listen via a podcast player of your choosing. And the kinesthetic learners among you can watch or listen while playing in a sandpit or something. Today, I am speaking with David Price, OBE. David is somebody that I've wanted to speak to for a really long time now. And the brilliant thing about having a podcast is that you can just email somebody who you want to talk to and say, can I just ask you questions for like two hours or more? And they almost always say yes. David is the author of two excellent books, Open, How We'll Work, Live and Learn in the Future, and The Power of Us, How We Connect, Act and Innovate Together. And it's this latter book that I'm mainly speaking with David about in this conversation that you're about to watch and or listen to. I listened to it recently as an audio book, The Power of Us, and it is absolutely fascinating. And many people agree with that analysis. Here are some of the lovely things that people have said about David's book. Annalee Killian, who works at an organization called Sparks and Honey, a fascinating company that features quite heavily in the book, says that The Power of Us is the first book that captures the cultural forces that power innovation, the structural elements to fuel people power, and the toolkit to nurture mass innovation which is quite a bold thing to say, isn't it? Uh, Dave Coplin, the CEO of Envisioneers Limited, says that this book is the closest thing we're going to get to a single handbook of all the things that we need to do and consider as organizations and leaders. Funny, helpful, and engaging, and full of actionable ideas and anecdotes. Do yourself and your organization a favor and read this book. Do yourself a favor. And Sam Conniff Allende and Alex Barker of Be More Pirate fame, and I'm reading that book as well. It's just over there, out of shot. Um, they said, packed with fascinating case studies showing that innovation often comes from unexpected places and is the result of ordinary people who are willing to go against the grain. Essential reading if you want to imagine a better future and get inspired. Close quote. I endorse all of these sentiments and I highly recommend reading this excellent and I would say important book. I can also highly recommend the conversation that you're about to watch or listen to, possibly while playing in a sandpit. 
David is a thoroughly lovely man and a really innovative thinker who has corralled together lots of ideas and case studies for how we can organize and indeed how people already are organizing their lives and the wider world so that it becomes a more of a fruitful and inclusive and less insane and frankly often terrifying place to be. So without further ado, I will now hand over to my recent conversation with David Price. I hope you enjoy the show. David Price, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I've been listening to your book um, for the last couple of weeks on, on Audible, The Power of Us, and it's a brilliant read and brilliantly read as well. The narrator is it's a really good one. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's fantastic. It's a it's a real art to be able to do that. Yeah, isn't it? I know. I'm gonna. I need to make a note of his name if ever I if ever I get that to the point. Is, he's, he's done tons and tons of those books, Matt. He's he was, but I I hadn't met him. The the publisher just picked him, and I thought, oh, he doesn't sound like me, but he sounds a lot better than me. <laughs> Yeah, I know his voice sounds really familiar. I'm sure that I've heard him on a million other things as well. So, so, but, and the, the book's really, really interesting. And there's lots of areas of overlap with some ideas that I've been thinking about a lot in recent years. Um, and just maybe like, so, so what I want to do in this conversation is to start with you and then we'll move on to the book. But, but actually at the outset, it might be just very useful to do a really, really quick sort of, very brief summary of the book. Could you explain a little bit to listeners if they're not familiar with it? What is yeah. the book about? Yeah, uh, this is um, it's, it's this is always the question that anybody who writes a book dreads because you think people say, "Just give me the thirty second, you know." <laughs> and the book that came before this was called "Open: How We'll Work, Live, and Learn in the Future." And when people asked for that thirty second. Uh, summary, I would go, well, it's kind of about the way in which knowledge and, you know, you, I could see their eyes were just glazing over. <laughs> but this one, though, it was really easy because uh, people would say, well, what's it about? Now, at the time, uh, it, we were right at the start of COVID, and I could just say, you know, the way that all those Facebook groups got together to create scrub hubs, it, that's what it's about. Or the way that Mercedes, um, Formula One team collaborated with University College London to create a, a continuous uh, breathing machine. It's that. And I think that is kind of at the heart of it, which is uh, how how do the, the plethora of user groups that we now see around the world, people who are, they're not asking for permission to, to hack existing products, they just do it. Um, and... I was trying to understand what is it that drives those communities and, and how transferable are some of those characteristics within those groups um, when you when you start putting them into more conventional organizations. Um, so very, very quick example. If you think about the Apple computer, it, it only came about because the two Steves, Steve Wozniak, Steve Jobs, used to attend the Homebrew Computing Club in a place that eventually became Silicon Valley. And by kind of uh, following open source principles, they shared all of that knowledge between them freely. And then they made, they made the world's first personal computer and then changed completely. You know, their, their whole 
ethic change. They didn't believe in being an open organization as, as Google kind of followed. Um, and so that, that was also a fascinating process. What is it about the mindset of user innovators when they then become producers? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And and it's such an absolutely fascinating area. I'm really looking forward to getting into this. Just just uh, like the, for me, there was two quotes that really stood out from the book that sort of, that seemed to distill what it what it what it's about um, for me at least. Uh, one was you were saying that, that you said that our natural propensity to solve problems creatively and collaboratively has been suppressed for a really long time possibly even for the whole of the industrial era. And then you talk about all of these different ways in which user innovation can be sort of unleashed. And there's this sort of this latent potential, isn't there? And you want the, the second quote is you say that you talk about the cognitive surplus that has been lying dormant, waiting to save the world. And it's really tantalizing prospect, the, the thought that we could figure out how to unlock all of this latent potential, this cognitive surplus that's just waiting there, all of this brilliant ability, this intelligence problem-solving capacity to fix all of the problems that we face, if we can figure out how to set the conditions to, to unleash all of that stuff. Indeed. And I think, you know, it, it, it hadn't appeared at the time when, the, um, or maybe it had, um, but the Repair Shop TV program is a classic example of that. You know, it, it it captivates people. People really admire that craft and the development of those crafts. And I think there is a real renaissance, you know, through the maker community and all of all of that, Fab Labs, all of those sort of things. It's tapping into something that, in a sense, we lost because part of the way the Industrial Revolution worked, of course, was to say, we've made something that you would never be able to make in your wildest dreams. So just consume it. You know, just buy it, and and right. we, we we lost we lost the ability to think I could I could fix this I could do this myself. Absolutely, and and so and there are loads of examples in the book, and we're gonna so we're gonna come on to this. So that that was really just for the benefit of listeners, so that they can see where this conversation is gonna go. Let's park that for now, and we're going to we're gonna come back to it in a little while. Uh, the power of us, but I'd firstly like to talk about you if I may, and or to ask about you rather, and to to find out about your story. Uh, I've been aware of you for a long time. You've been on my list of people that I want to interview on this podcast for a really long time. Uh, I was speaking with somebody recently who described you as light years ahead of your time. You're somebody who's very concerned with the future and interested in the future um, and the way, the way that uh, the, the world is going. And so I'd really like to hear about your past and what led you to this point and, and what has shaped you as a person. So that's I'm going to start by asking you about your own experience of school. Where did you go to school? What kind of school were you at? What were you like as a school student? <laughs> okay, I'll give you a very short version. Uh, I was terrible. Um, I, and I went to... Um, to be honest, James, I, I have no memory of my primary school uh, it just passed by in a blur all I, all I remember is that you know I was brought up in the northeast Jarrow um, almost an entirely Catholic town so I went to a Catholic primary school and you know it was the days when the parish priest would come in and ask how many times did you go to church on Sunday not did you go to church <laughs> how many services did you attend God so, so we all just used to lie through our teeth but it, it was um it was only when I got to 
secondary school because uh, I was of an era where we took the 11 plus. I had no idea um, what the 11 plus was, but by some fluke managed to get in. And I went to, I better not mention the name in case it crops up later on, because years later, I did do some development work in this particular school. But I went to a, a Catholic grammar school um, and I was I was in this the, the, the dumb kids stream. So I was in the lowest set for pretty much everything. And uh, it, it, that coincided with um, uh, the loss of my eyes or, or, or the diminishing of my eyesight. And I refused to wear those horrible national health glasses. So for, I'd say, most of my grammar school career, I just spent the time being as anonymous as I possibly could so that basically no one would ever see me. Um, no one would pick me out because I couldn't see what was going on on the board anyway. So, and I managed to do it really successfully. People would say, why aren't you making notes? You know, because this, this was supposed to be, which always makes me laugh now thinking about, this was supposed to be a really good school. And yet we spent our entire time as students copying from the board what the teacher was writing up into our notebook. And I just, I always wanted to scream out, just give me the bloody notebook. You know, <laughs> why do I have to write it out? Um, but but that's that's an, I, I didn't even do that. So, you know, people would say, well, what, why aren't you doing that? I didn't want to tell them I couldn't see the board. So I just bluffed my way through it. Um, as a result, I couldn't wait to get out of school. I hated it, hated every moment of it. And, um, you know, it was funny. I was at an event uh, last week, that a workshop that I was leading, and, and, and one of the head teachers there said, I think most of us are um, working in, in education because we really enjoyed it. And I said, no, I think some of us are working because we want to fix it. I think the, the, I've, I've met, in my experience, at least the opposite is true. Like when I've seen people doing polls on Twitter of like, like educators, what was your experience of school like? And it's nearly always abysmal. Like people had a really, really hard time at school. And yet, but psychologically, there's something really interesting that people are often still drawn back to this system that, that served them so poorly. Well, and, and I think, you know, you reach a, I, I see it now, particularly in um, in all the ed tech guys, the startups where the, the, their own kids start to come along and they start looking around at a school and, and many of them have decided to try and start their own schools because there's nothing there that meets their needs. And and I guess for me, the reason that I was determined to, to do something in education was when my own kids started having pretty much the same kind of experience that I had at school. And I thought, you, you can just carp about it for the rest of your life, or you can get in there and try and do something. And so that's that's essentially what I try and do. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, and so so you couldn't wait to get out of there. And then what happened when you did get out of there? What, what came next for you? <laughs> this is so funny because... Your career always makes sense in hindsight, but at the time, you know, I you just stumble from one thing to another. And the other thing that I find incredible now, especially when I talk to young people, and my heart bleeds for them, the ones who are struggling to find work, because during the, the late 70s, in, even in the Northeast, which was, you know, Jarrow was famous for its high levels of unemployment, but there was pretty much full employment. So it wasn't whether you could find a job, it was what sort of a job. And, you know, largely you could go down the shipyard, you could go down the mine, 
or you could get a job in the civil service. Uh, and so I knew I wasn't going to do either of the first two. So I got a job um, in the civil service, the DHSS, and I was probably the, the worst civil servant in the entire history <laughs> of the civil service. I was shocking to the point where every every other week on a Friday afternoon, all of my colleagues used to have to come and take all of the work that I hadn't completed off my desk and they would then complete it. And, and, and one day I was just ashamed at this. I couldn't take it any longer. Stood up and told the boss, I said, I'm just let you know, I'm leaving next week. And he said, and I, I kid you not, these were his exact words. He said, and what about your pension? <laughs> to which I said, I'm 17. <laughs> I don't care about my pension. I, uh, maybe I should have done. Um, but he said, what are you going to do? And I thought, yeah, what am I going to do? And the only thing that I was really passionate about was making music. My cousin was um, quite well known at the time, Alan Price. He was in a group called The Animals. And oh, right. When I saw that, you know, he'd managed to put a career together, I thought, well, maybe it's not that difficult. And so I I didn't realize at the time, but I must have had a kind of entrepreneurial streak because I wasn't a very good musician. But I managed to find a way to, to get enough work for me and originally one other guy um, who, I, <laughs> again, to my shame, I managed to talk out of dropping out of his A-levels before he completed his A-levels. I don't know how I managed to do that, but, but then it, that led to I was in a band and we were signed by Sharon Osborne at Jet Records and we, and we went down the predictable sort of path that signed bands do. And then the punk thing happened and I thought this isn't uh, this isn't going to go well for people like me who write these pretty little songs. So that it was at that point that I thought maybe I could go to college. But if anyone had said you know, you, you'll you end up working in education. I would have said, no, 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 that's never going to happen. Um, but I sort of slipped into one job, followed another, and that's how it kind of came about. I see, right. Okay. And so and so, how would you describe yourself now? So so on your your website, it sort of says that you're, 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 you work with organizations mainly, not so much in education, but I sort of became aware of you through your work around education and you, you, you sort of edited a book a few years ago, Education Forward. What's yeah. the role that education has played in your professional career and, and how does that fit in with what you do now working with organizations? Well, I would say the most of the organizations that I'm working with uh, are still schools. So, it, you know, a lot of that work is at a strategic level. But I also do, a, I probably spend about a third of my time giving talks, about a third of my time um, training teachers uh, in, you know, a whole variety of um, what I consider to be innovative approaches to, to education. Um, and about a third of my time on the kind of more strategic uh, aspect with with schools and other um, organizations. I've always had terrible trouble from some people because I refuse to separate out those two things, uh, you know, the commercial world and the education world. And I do that purposefully because I just think there's an awful lot that both those sectors could learn from each other. So I deliberately didn't write, you know, the power of us for education and the power of us for businesses. I, I just blend those um, those examples and case studies. 
Um, so that's that's kind of a, you know, but I, I should be long since retired. Um, <laughs> I just can't stop myself, I suppose. I've noticed this. Lots of people keep retiring and then unretiring as they realize that actually um, they're just drawn back, drawn back into it. And so help me to join the dots here. So you were a musician for a long time. You, you describe it in the book as, um, what was it, the penniless hedonism of, of being a music or something. Um, and so help me to connect the dots. How did you get from there? Did you work as a teacher for a while? How did you get into working yeah, with schools and organizations? To be honest, again, this is my naivety. My, my whole life being um, characterized by my naivety and just stumbling into things. But, but I, I, this friend of mine, um, she, she was uh, a mature student, and she said, "You know, did you ever think about going back to college?" At that time, I was um, working in Ibiza in piano bars. Before that, became kind of usurped by the whole dance movement um but it was you know it was starting to lose its appeal and um and I thought what else could I do and I would join these kind of pickup bands and they would they would always call me Bamba after Bamba Gascoigne because I read the Guardian and I was you know <laughs> but in a rock and roll band you tended not to read the Guardian so I suppose there was something about at that point in my life I wanted a bit more kind of intellectual stimulation but frankly, it was a commercial decision. You, you know, at that time, and again, this is something that people cannot believe, but I not only didn't have to pay any fees, I got a maintenance grant, and I just bought a tiny little two-up, two-down house in Jarrow, and uh, the government paid the interest on the on the mortgage. It, you know, it's astonishing now. So I, there, mm. there was I. Like, thinking I'll just find a, a nice cushy little course that I could do and um, and still play, you know, I was working four nights a week at the Holiday Inn playing piano. I was working in a rhythm and blues band at weekends. So I, I, I keep saying to people, I've never been as well off as when I was a student. And, um, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, that day came to an end and, uh, and went off, moved down to Manchester and worked in community context as a community musician. So it was it was a kind of halfway house. I didn't think of what I was doing as education, but I was. And it was, you know, I was working with people from the age of 80 down to the age of eight, and I was helping them um, write songs and make their own music. And then uh, all of that came to a very abrupt end during the poll tax riots. And I was I was based in City College in Manchester and the assistant principal, who I just loved, he was a fantastic leader. He said to me, there is a job going as a senior lecturer. And I, he said to him, and I kid you not, this is God's honest truth. I turned to him and I said, Peter, what's a lecturer? I had no <laughs> idea, no idea what a lecturer was. And he kind of laughed and he said, oh, you'll get the hang of it. Anyway, <laughs> I'm some miracle. I got the job, and so then I was in <laughs> formal further education, and then by another miracle, I saw this newspaper cutting which said Paul McCartney is going to start up a, a college in his old grammar school in Liverpool, and I just looked at it, you know, and I thought, that's uh, that's my job. I'm going to, I'm perfect for that job, and so I wrote to them and said, you know, I could, um, I I could do that job, and they wrote and said, well, it, we're not. We're two years from opening, but we do need some work done on the curriculum. And 
I, I designed the curriculum before I ever got a job there. Um, and and then, then I did get the job. And uh, so I'd gone from, you know, community to adult to further ed to um, HE. I'd never worked in K-12. And, and once I decided to go back to do freelance work, um, I'm working as a consultant, then it was almost exclusively K to 12. So, you know, I've, I, with, a, with a couple of very notable exceptions where I, I, I put myself in a situation um, where I, you know, volunteered work in some schools, I hadn't really done any schools based work, but, you know, education is education as far as I'm concerned. And, um, and I've been working ever since doing leading innovation projects I started working with the innovation unit in in London and um, led up a couple of um, fairly radical projects around innovation and student engagement trying to I've always really been working on the same things which is how can we make school a less awful experience than the one I had you know put put crudely that's that's been the driving force in my career um but it's yeah, it, right you know, it's led me to to writing the books and and talking about it. Yeah, interesting. That that, that idea of less awful. I've got this. I, I often use this phrase, least bad. You know, like there's just like I find the the, the idea of least bad really useful because people often sort of strive for some sort of excellence or they've set themselves these goals and it's all just like you put lots of pressure on yourself when it's that way how can we have a world beating education system hear people using that language all the time and i just find it a big just as it doesn't work really as a useful thing but if you think about like how what's the least bad if you can define what's bad about the way that things are now and how can we make those less bad and continually orient yourself towards making things ever less bad then you're basically playing the same game but it just feels to me like a more useful framing and um, i think to a certain extent what what certainly this current government has done for the last 12 years is to try to create um an education system that's teacher proof but by, by that i mean they're trying to ensure that you know the 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 worst possible teacher couldn't mess up too badly, and I kind of think that's that's a that's a poverty of ambition. That you know, surely we can do better than that. And also, yeah, examine your own conscience and, and what is it that you've done to have to have totally. You know, I do a lot of work with teacher trainees, and they're they're full of ideas, and then they end up you know being placed in a school where. Unfortunately, they're just given a scheme of work and, and told do that. And it's like, it's no wonder that we've got so many young people leaving the profession within the first five years. Yeah, absolutely. I want to I want to talk about education um, later on, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna park that this idea of a teacher proof teacher proof education system and the questions around retention. Let's come back to to that later on because maybe we can apply this idea of user innovation to think about how that would apply. Um, in the sphere of, of education, um, just before we, just while we, we're talking about you, there's, there's there's this other question that I often like to ask, which is this idea of significant learning, which I, I first came across in the work of Carl Rogers, where he was, you know, the guy who invented person-centered therapy, and he talks about significant learning as learning that that changes the life of the individual in some way, that shapes you as a person, that shapes your thinking. And, uh, and I'm often really intrigued to ask people about this. And we've probably heard a few significant moments in your journey already so far. But I just wonder if there's anything else that stands out as you look back over this over this period of time, going all the way back to leaving school and doing music and what have you. 
Is there anything that that you that leaps out as particularly having sort of shaped your thinking? Oh yeah, way? absolutely. Um, in a, in a way, I think that at the time I, I I would never have imagined the kind of profundity of it, and yet it's so simple. But uh, when when my aforementioned famous cousin Alan, who I was constantly being compared to, by the way, you know, oh you're okay, but you're not as good as Alan. <laughs> um, when when he his mother died and he came up for the funeral and um, he came round our house and you know we had the usual drinks and sandwiches and I was thirteen at the time and my mother said go on get on the piano Dave get on the piano play something for Alan and I played this you know awful pop song which had been written out you know in, in the sheet music and it was you know lifeless and dull and he was very kind and he just said. Yeah, that's very good. But did you ever think you don't actually need those dots to make music? And I hadn't. It had never occurred to me. And over the course of the next two hours, he just sat and he went through, if there's any musicians listening, don't know what I mean by the three-chord trick. He explained how that works um, and, you know, got me to think of the left hand as a bass guitar and the right hand as the, the guitar. Uh, and and it transformed me, and it it transformed me not just um, because I suddenly could go to youth clubs and girls would find me interesting, which had never happened in my life before. Um, but I I suppose what I realised is the power of informal learning, and 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 that's been a, another one of the big driving forces throughout my um, career. I guess is that you know we've constantly underestimated the power of informal learning. So many years later, I did a, a piece of work with the Paul Hamlin Foundation about, can we create a, a music education system which is which starts with the music that kids are interested in? And, it, you know, you can imagine what, what classically trained music teachers would make of that. It, it, it just sent them into a tailspin. Um, and I looked around, I thought, well, you know, maybe it needs some kind of academic theory to back it up. And I could only find one book, which fortunately uh, I reached out and got in touch with the, the academic, uh, Professor Lucy Green, who's still at um, University, uh, the Institute of Education in London. And that was the only time that I could see where informal learning had been given the seriousness that I felt it deserved. And I think that's that's too academic shame that they haven't looked at, well, how did people learn before school? You know, school's a relatively recent invention, and yet we, we still seem to make progress. So for me, it was always, from that moment on, really, it was about what, how can we actually get that sense of immediacy? You know, when you're a young kid and you learn to play the guitar, it's, I've heard Paul McCartney describe it this way as well, you know, you've got three chords, and then your uncle or your cousin shows you a fourth, and off, you're away, you want to be in a band, you want to, you know, perform. Um, I've So I've constantly had arguments with, I know you don't want to go back to education just now, but just as a side note, I've constantly had arguments with people who say, you know, you you have to learn all of the theory before you can then be creative. And I, and I say, well, how do you explain Paul McCartney, who still can't read or write a note of music? You know, he's, he's done okay for himself. So, so that that moment for me shaped not only then what I was then going to do for the first part of my career, but actually the second part of my career was pretty much shaped by it as well. 
Absolutely, yeah, really interesting, and and it, it's, it's hard not to bleed the conversation into education, isn't it? Because sort of everything does. Yeah. Like this was what eternally happens in my internal monologue. It's just like looking at problems in the world and just hoovering it into an education framework. But yeah. but absolutely, informal learning, um, hugely powerful, and that's the lesson that I've learned from doing this podcast. Like almost every time I ask people this question about significant learning. Sometimes they mention something about a particular teacher, say, but it's very rarely about something that happens within formal educational settings. The learning that counts, the learning that shapes us, the learning that really matters in shaping our lives is often incidental, accidental, spontaneous, you know, uh, random in some sense. Yeah. Um, and that's fascinating, especially when you think you've, of how much content there is in the curriculum. Um that is sort of oppressive, isn't it? The combination of all the content plus all of the accountability plus all of the just sort of the the managerialism that sort of the, the weighs down on the profession through school leaders onto kids and through to their parents. And there's just there's no space, is there, for 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 those informal sort of connections to be made? Um, because there's just yeah, the way that the system is is organized. Um, and so, absolutely. So, is there anything else that that springs to mind in the significant learning category before we move on? Well, I guess you know we we we've 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 met all of us meet people who are, have this transformative uh, impact upon them. And my head of music when I was at college, you know, God love him, he heard me play this really dreadful, easy-to-play version of Claire de Lune as my audition piece. It was just, it was a crime against music. <laughs> and he said, he sat there with me and he looked at me and he said, it says here that you've been a professional musician for the last 15 years. And I kind of hung my head and I said, yes, I have. And he said, well, you haven't been doing that. And I said, no, 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 I write songs. And he said, well, play me some of that. And so he he believed in me at a time when I just thought, you know the, the 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 world of academia just seemed beyond reach for someone like me who was you know I, I we were brought up in very very underprivileged circumstances. My my mum and dad always made sure we never went hungry, but you know growing up in nineteen fifties Jarrow was was not easy, and it just seemed like laughable that you could become um, an academic. You know, it seemed it was laughable that you'd even go to university. And one of the, I suppose, the chips on my shoulder that I've carried is is the, a refusal to sort of play that game. You know, that academics play where they 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 will cover up their the point that they're trying to make in such obscure languages and with you know millions and millions of references because they have to. Um, and I just thought by this time I'd met. Ken Robinson, and he then became, you know, this, this huge uh, father figure in my life. And Ken always used to say, you don't have to write like an academic to be respected by academics. You can still write simply. And Ken, of course, was just a master at that, could write really accessibly, but, but, he, but he was still making some really powerful intellectual points. So... It was Ken really who said to me, "It's about time you wrote a book." And 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 I got great advice from him about how you write a book. Because again, I, I, nobody really teaches you how to write a book. You've just got to find out yourself. 
Um, so yeah, you know, a number of people who've 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 had that key input at a at a particular time in my life that I really needed it. Mm. Thank you. That's really interesting. Can you tell me more about that? About about Ken. How did you come to meet him? And how did this this you said that he you described him as a father figure? How did yeah. that relationship sort of take shape? Well, I'm I'm sure Ken would have been mortified to, to be to described as because he's only a few years older than me. <laughs> a big brother figure then. Yeah, in, in my eyes, he was he was like you know a colossus. And um when I was um, putting the academic team together at the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, the university said, you know, you have to have a an external examiner for each of these disciplines. And because you're purporting to do a, um, a an integrated degree, which, by the way, had never been done uh, in the arts at that point, um, it, it, they're relatively common now. But they said, uh, so you'll have to have a, a bit of a polymath who is comfortable working across all of those um, disciplines and has a really strong academic track record. So in my mind, there was only one person. And I wrote to him and he said, I'll come up and let's talk. And um, we did. And thank God he, he, he accepted it. And then when I went freelance, Ken was good enough to, to get me a few jobs, one of which was going back to my old grammar school and uh, trying to understand, you know, what had happened to me and and, and why these people had, had, had put me through hell for six years. But but on the basis that I was, um, we were trying to design a new kind of merged set of schools. So he not only, you know, got me started, kind of encouraged me to write a book. He also, when I made the jump, back into freelance work he gave me the nudge and kind of said you know it'll be okay you'll, you'll you won't drown you'll be okay and what was the book what was your first one so that was a book called open how we'll work live and learn in the future um didn't start with that title didn't start with that premise it started off as something completely different i mean one day someone will will actually tell me how to write a book and when i hear you know people i call proper authors describe their process I just kind of think oh my god how do they manage to do that because the only way I can I can produce you know 300 pages that make some sort of sense is for me just to follow my instincts follow follow the things that I find interesting and not worry about where they're going to lead what the overall thesis behind the book is going to be in that particular case you know, we I the, the the key phrase that that I that made me think this is what I want the book to be about was when um and we were just starting the Liverpool Institute at, at this point, or maybe not, maybe it was just before that. Anyway, Tony Blair had said that um he sort of made a speech about education and said that in the future the uh the 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 profusion of technology will mean that everybody needs content and therefore the people who produce content are the ones who will inherit the earth. They'll make all the money and, and that's what our schools need to be concentrated upon. The reality of the situation was that he didn't foresee that people would be more than happy to give that stuff away, to give the fruits of their 
intellect away and that the, the whole concept of intellectual property was turned on its head. And I thought, well, nobody saw that one coming. And so that I then started to, to dig into what is it about that, that um, kind of motivation that we had, you know, bear in mind, the naivety again of someone who looked at Twitter and thought, isn't this a great place? You know, and now, now it's, you know, I still think there are more random acts of kindness which take place on any given day on Twitter than there are, you know, people trolling. But it, it, there's no doubt that it's it's become a magnet for some of the worst aspects of human behavior. But I I, I just thought, no, people are people are basically good and, and they want to benefit humankind. And if the way to do that is to make that information as freely available as possible, you know, you just have to look at what happened with COVID when the when the Chinese initially said that they weren't going to release the genetic code of the virus. And then eventually they had to, the pressure was too great. And the moment that they did that was the moment that AstraZeneca, you know, created the vaccine in, in, in periods that were just considered unheard of. But that was because they made that in knowledge freely available. Someone didn't have to kind of get the disease and then break it down and do all of that. It just shortened the whole process of innovation. So that's kind of what the book was about, which is to say, you know, there are, there, the, 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 you can learn formally, and there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody needs a mix of that. But there, there is something about the way in which people were learning socially, you know, and it's it's just now, you know, seven years ago, uh, a lot of what I was saying, people were going, I don't get it. What are you talking about? But But now everybody, you know, gets a YouTube video out rather than a recipe book. And they look at, well, you know, what did Jamie Oliver cook? And how do I do it? And we just watch videos like that. You know, we find all of that information because it's just ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And um, and I still think that we haven't fully reaped the benefits of that. But, you know, the, the, the points that I was making to educators in that book was, for goodness sakes, let's not pretend that it doesn't exist. So, you know, if a child can watch every video of every lecture from some of the world's greatest lecturers at MIT, why would they want to listen to you drawn on and, and, and go through your PowerPoint presentation? Teachers have to do something. And, you know, for a long time, I used to get teachers' backs up by saying, you know, any teacher that can be replaced by a YouTube video will be. Um, and, you know, people would get awfully upset about that. But the, the reality is teachers have had to find other things that they can bring um, because it's it's you, you you can you can watch that stuff anyway, and I think the next phase of that development, and I keep saying this to to educators, and again it, it horrifies them, but I think within the next ten years, maybe fifteen, we will see a global peer to peer learning platform where young people teach themselves basically, and um, the great uh, American that I was I once did a a conference with Richard Elmore, um, a genius, sadly died within very short space of time compared to Ken as well. And um, he was he was telling me about this thing called Redesh de Tutoria, which was starting in Mexico, which was kids become proficient and, and expert in one area 
And then that qualifies them to teach other kids. And that was their way of coping with the shortage of teachers within Mexico. But it, it doesn't need a shortage of teachers for that approach to become popular. And I think kids are so much better networked now. The technology doesn't scare them. I just think it's a matter of time before we will get peer-to-peer -peer, uh, learning at scale around the globe. So, so let's not try to pretend that it doesn't exist. Let's work with it. Right. And so, so can I just clarify, what do you mean when you say peer-to-peer? -peer? So um, the kid who shows you how to do that Cruyff trick with a football, you know, and, and then you, you practice it and then they show you, no, you don't do it like that. That's that's all I mean, you know. The kid who has always helped you with your homework in 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 school, um, but but you know they, they get told off if they do it. Well, that's why do we do that? Why do we punish kids for engaging in peer to peer learning? Why aren't we why aren't we promoting that? Because we all know any of us who've been involved in education know that the best way to learn something is to teach somebody else how to do it. So it's a sort of win win. And Red Estituteria is spread around the world like wildfire, not, not because it does away with the need for teachers, it, but because kids love learning from other kids. And, and we need to facilitate that, not block it. Yeah. Okay. And so so we're sort of we're bleeding here into, into the, the power of us, it yeah. seems. And so let's just like go to the start of that. What was this spark that that led you to to realize that there was a book here? In the start of the book, you talk about a talk that you gave at South by Southwest. Yes. Um, so I suppose it for me, you know, being a musician, we used to have this thing called the second album syndrome, which is like you used all your, your good songs up on the first album. But the record company wants a second album and you think, oh, God, what am I going to do? And people kept saying to me, you know, are you going to write another book? Um, and I had a publisher who said, well, when, when are you going to get another book out? And I just didn't know what to do. So I was starting to kind of toy with these ideas of user innovation. You know, again, looking back in hindsight, it makes total sense, you know, because if we share what we knew, well, we pretty soon want to share what we make, or you know, uh, in 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 cases of uh, COVID and, and the incredible ingenuity that we had, share what we make at scale, which I think is the next big step, the next big development. But um, it it just seemed like these were just nascent ideas that I had kicking around, and I I'd heard about South by Southwest, you know, that it was super cool. It was all hipsters and trendy and, you know, nobody ever got an invitation to speak there. But I thought, well, I'll, I'll bung in a, a proposal. And all, all I all I could propose was um, the title was something like, say hello to your new best friend, People Powered Innovation. And I thought, well, that'll get them gooped in. <laughs> and me and my wife were sitting outside this hall, which held about 500 people. And I didn't realize it was like Edinburgh Fringe, you know, there's nobody there till about five minutes before the performance is due to start. And there was literally nobody there, just me and my wife. And so I said to her, I turned to her and I said, listen, if more than 10 people turn up, I will turn this into a book. And um, five minutes before the session started, 500 people came, 
they were turning them away. I was just gobsmacked. And I thought, okay, let's push your look here. And I said to people, <laughs> listen, I'm going to share some ideas. They're not fully formed, but if you think there's something in it, stay behind and let's have a talk. And about 120 people stayed behind and they shared their ideas. Because what I found about writing the book was as soon as you started to explain it, somebody would go, oh, I know who you need to talk to. You need to talk to X because they're doing this kind of stuff. And um, I thought, well, if a bunch of, you know, Silicon Valley hipsters think it's okay and that there's something new in what I was saying, then maybe maybe I should write it. And so I did. There you go. And so and so um, people powered innovation was the sort of was the, the, the strap line at the time. Yeah. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, it's probably best explained by um, the, the, the metaphor I use in the book. And forgive me, the, it, this does get back to the point. But uh, I, the metaphor I, I used, I've, I've been a keen gardener all my life and I'm getting on a bit. So I started being interested in raised bed gardening, but I thought it's quite expensive filling up those beds with topsoil. And I thought maybe there's an alternative. And of course, I did what everybody does. I went on YouTube and I came across this bonkers Australian guy who was proposing a, a, a German concept called Hugel culture. Uh, and the idea was that you would fill the bottom of the bed with really bulky organic matter. And then you wouldn't have to fill it all with kind of expensive topsoil. Then you put your topsoil on and you do that. The, I, the principle being, and you know, I'm three years into it now and I'm, I'm looking out at the fruits as we speak. The idea is that it feeds that that from the bottom up and you don't have to then be constantly applying fertilizer and anything to make 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 things grow okay and I, as i was writing it and sharing this metaphor i had this revelation which i thought oh god i was that kind of a manager i fed it all from the top down and i would I, you know i thought i was being um helpful to people i would come in every morning and go i've had this great idea here's what we should do and then people would either go no that's a rubbish idea or they'd go yeah okay but the important thing is after a while they stopped having ideas and they did that because they just thought well he's going to come along and tell us what we're doing and so there was a couple of times when i was writing the book that i just thought oh god yeah like you know i used to think it was my job as a manager to work on people's weaknesses, not their strengths. And, and that was wrong as well. So it for me, people-powered innovation is, or became, as I, as I started exploring the book, can you create a culture in an organization which ensures that people's natural creativity it comes to the fore and it just becomes an everyday event? It's not this ad hoc, you know, uh, hackathon that you have right it's, it just it's it, you've you've created the culture where everyone actually understands that their ideas have got merit and they're not going to get shot down no one's going to laugh at them if it doesn't work um and and that's really what i ended up doing which was to go around schools and non-schools places like wd40 that i visited really innovative organizations to see what are they doing in terms of their culture that 
that creates this sense of people-powered innovation. But I, of course, I also looked at what was going on in the in the world beyond um, either school or edu uh, education or commerce. And of course, COVID happened, and I'd finished the book, uh, and I'd submitted the the manuscript, and um, and then the publisher rang me up. I was in, I was actually in Australia when COVID first happened. I was doing a training tour. And she rang me and she said, uh, you're going to have to rewrite the book, aren't you? And I said, yeah, because uh, this is it, it would have been like, um, you know, writing a novel during the Second World War and, and not making any reference to it. You know, <laughs> they, I, I knew that this was such a huge event that it, it had to. So but but I turned it to my advantage because I, I thought, well, look, if you've got all these organizations that you think are really innovative and 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 bring out the best in their people, then something like a pandemic will sort out the wheat from the chaff. Surely, you know, the, the organizations who aren't doing that will really struggle. But but yours, let's see how they get on. And and that's that's what happened. And and it was it was reassuring and reaffirming to see that most of the places that I talked about, whether they were in the private sector or whether they were just, you know, 17-year-old kids in a bedroom creating, you know, world-beating COVID tracking apps, they, they, they were doing amazing things during the pandemic. And, and on the other hand, governments all around the world were just failing signally to deal with this, this epidemic. So the phrase, phrase I use in the book is communities are outperforming bureaucracies. And I really do believe that. Right, absolutely, and and the the yeah, I, I can completely see how the pandemic just served to underscore your thesis that you like you say you'd already uh, submitted the manuscripts, and then this massive like proof in the pudding arrived. And so, just to pick out an, an example of what you were talking about there, so like in this country, the um, the track and trace app, I think the government uh, paid a private contractor something like thirty eight billion. I believe it might not be correct, but I think it was thirty eight billion, uh, and and it never materialized. It never even they never even produced one, and and you contrast this with a, with a kid. Is that the person you were talking about? A seventeen year old kid in in yeah. South Korea. What's his name? Well, there was two. There was Ryan Jun So Hyung uh, in South Korea. But also a kid in Seattle at the same time was doing the same thing, and that was Avi Schiffman. Um, and and again, I would like to bring this back to education insofar as Avi at the time was looking around at a at a college to apply to, and he can't. When I made contact with him, I said, "This is an amazing thing that you've done." He he won the Webby Person of the Year. You know, it's like the Oscars for web designers, and. Um, I said, where are you going to apply? And he said, I don't know. He said, because my grade point average is appallingly low, something like 1.4. And he said, nobody will have me. And I said, Avi, you don't want to go to a college that's just going to look at your test scores. You want a college that's going to look at what you've done, you know, which is still the, the world's most used um, COVID tracking website. And, you know, as it happened, he ended up getting into Harvard. So it kind of worked out for him, but it, it, it could have gone the other way. And, and right. I, I think, what's wrong with our education system that can't recognise that, you know, a kid can stay up for three days and three nights and do something which all of your government expertise fails to do? You know, we surely we have to find ways to recognise that. Right. 
Absolutely. And that's, again, you know, to come back to this, to what I said at the start of this conversation, it's sort of like spine tingling, like the, the prospect that if we, once we can identify this and name it and, and diagnose it and say, this is the problem. The problem is essentially, and this features a lot in the work that I do around implementation science, the problem is top-down change. I, I referred to the top-down monster. I did a TED talk about it earlier this year. Uh, that we refer to, we just get the top-down guy out of the out of the box every time there's a problem. We're like, right, let's just organize this in a rigidly hierarchical way. And like my brother works at a at a hospital, and at one point during the during the COVID pandemic, they had they had this like sort of chain of command where there was like bronze command and they met every day to look at what was going on and then they fed into silver command and that was they met every other day and then they would feed into gold command and that was like once a week and so by the time like relevant day-by-day information was fed up to the management it was like a week out of date and it's just you know one of a billion examples of of how we just reach for these very hierarchical structures to, to solve complex, dynamic, ever-changing problems. And it's just hopelessly ineffectual. But the flip side of that is that if we can figure out how to how to unleash this in a systematic way so that it's not just sort of dependent on political pressure forcing China to release the genome of the virus or whatever it is, if we can figure out how to systematize this and how to how to unleash all of this potential, the the it's unbelievable what we could achieve in a really short space of time i agree and i think you know one of the the, the, there are very few you know good things about covid but one of the things i think which ought to happen i mean i just hope that it does is that never again will we say you need 10 to 15 years of clinical trials before you can decide whether a drug or an approach is has merit or not you know, because we 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 totally turned that on its head when it needed to, and it worked. And I just think that 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 length of time has been compressed. And if 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 we could, if we just had the ingenuity, well, we have it. We just need to release it to to say, well, the way that that worked, why don't we apply it? You know, and I know some people are now starting to apply it to cancer research. That's really powerful, but. But what I saw in education was, again, teachers who, uh, you know, wouldn't go near a laptop. Suddenly they had to transfer all their learning materials on online and they did it. And you think, well, that, that was amazing. But then the opportunity, I think, was, was for all of us to go, right, how can we ensure that we, we learn from what's gone on and we don't just go back to normal? Uh, and I, I fear that in a lot of cases, that's exactly what's happened. We've just gone back to how it used to be. Yeah, and and there's lots of there's lots going on there, right? Because because like the thing, just within education, people are so overworked and so sort of um, and just overloaded and overwhelmed, and their nervous systems are shot, and they're not really able to sort of to take on new stuff. And so uh, on the one hand, lots of people. We're saying let's use the pandemic as a as an opportunity to hit reset and to rethink how we assess kids and to rethink curriculum and to maybe figure out how to give more people's more choice and voice and so on. And understandably, and I was one of those voices. Absolutely, I think that you know there is an opportunity for change, but 
I totally sympathize as a, as a former teacher myself with those of those uh, within the profession who were saying, honestly, <laughs> like we do, we are on our knees here. Like this is not the time to make us fundamentally rethink everything. And there is so much change that, that rains down. And again, I think that that's a feature of, of the, the top down problem because the top down hierarchies are not stable at all. Like they, 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 you know, I talked about this in the TED talk, the average cabinet minister in this country is imposed for 1.3 years. And, and, you know, the, like the senior leaders within schools, not that much more where, you know, they do sort of behavior for a year or two and then they're doing curriculum and then they're on assessment and the next year they're doing the timetable and they sort of rotate around. And so nobody ever really sort of develops like really strong domain knowledge of their particular area. Each new person comes in, they want to put their mark on their office and they basically ignore whatever was being done before and they initiate their new thing. And this constant churn leads to this culture of like initiative-itis, innovation fatigue, goes by many names. And it's again, it's a it's a it's a sort of a side effect of this of the this this never-ending churn within this top-down system. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. And and I I you know what I've just said is not in any way meant to be. A critique of teachers because apart from anything else one of the things that i'd underestimated is some of the behavioral issues that when these kids did come back to school they were carrying and i've seen that in so many schools now it, 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 it it's not just a coincidence um so they had all of that to deal with as well and then no sooner they got that out of the way then you know the cost of living crisis and and all of that it's 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 too much for teachers it's not too much for a sensible, competent government, though, to say, okay, let, we need to rethink some of this. And some governments around the world are doing that. And we 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 could have been one of those people, but no, we we miss we let the opportunity slip, it seems to me. Yeah. And and you know, I mean, there are ideas in the political sphere. It's essentially, you know, forms of devolution. You know, we have like devolved assemblies in this country now. And um, you know, like the government devolved uh, the 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 decisions around the setting the exchange rates to the uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, the interest rates to the Bank of England. And you know, there are sort of they're not world beating examples, but they're sort of in the ballpark, aren't they, of, of devolving decision making to to the most local or to or to a to a to a level where it can be better regulated, where you've got a system that's more dynamic, that where there are more sort of thermostat dials, if you like, where people with local oversight over their particular context are able to make smart decisions at the point of use. Um, and so, and actually, you, you touched upon upon health there. So before we get into into um, the next question that I have, there was something that was fascinating in your book that I have never heard of before. Which is the people who are doing drug trials on themselves? Uh, these sort of biohackers. biohackers, right? And and often with generic drugs because there's because there's no incentive. So a generic drug, for the benefit of listeners, is a drug that's like when people develop a drug, there's, there's a patent, isn't there, that lasts for like something like ten or fifteen or twenty years, and then once it's expired, the patent's expired, then it's available generically, like paracetamol, and that's why you can buy it, you know, in the co-op for. 39p for a packet or whatever but and so once the drug has become generic there's no incentive for drug companies to to continue to experiment with those drugs and to run very expensive clinical trials um 
to see what else that drug can do with like you know off label yeah. off label use um and so there's this sort of community of people you'll have to forgive me my neighbor seems to be um banging a nail in next door i don't know if you can hear that but hopefully yeah. <laughs> hopefully it's a short nail <laughs> um so um yeah tell me more about biohackers and how did well, you come come across these people and what's what's happening it sounds like sort of incredible really yes and it is it but it also goes to the heart of um the the point that i was trying to make in the book which is you know when we have these communities of user innovators and you know the, the, there's no more striking example of user innovators than people who are, who are recycling off, off-label drugs. But people will, will take chances when they or their loved one's lives are at stake because the quote that really struck home to me when I was researching it, I've, I've had prostate cancer now for, what, uh, 2009, I was first diagnosed, so quite a long time. And... Um, I, I, at one point, I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll probably be dead soon. Little did I know that, you know, the conventional route has worked out pretty good for me. But I, I have tried all sorts of unconventional routes, um, including, you know, things that I, I wasn't sure what I was taking, but it, it, it seemed to be working. I went across to Germany and uh, met some really amazing people who had set up a, an alternative clinic. And they were working with people who, frankly, were at death's door, you know, and, and nothing had worked. So they were they were going to die of one form of cancer or another within a very short space of time. And so they were um, using this substance called um, BP3. It's bi, bio, I can never remember the full name. Anyway, it's a very commonly found substance, but... In some clinical trials, it, it seemed to have a positive effect on, on people's cancer, solid tumours particularly. And so Germany has a fairly lax approach to these kind of things. And so they said, yeah, OK, you can you can do it. Um, so they, they, they loosened the kind of regulation. And I went over to see them. And, and I realised then, as, as one um, cancer researcher that I spoke to at, at my local hospital, Jimmy's in Leeds, said, you know, for years I've had patients come in and say, what about grapefruit seeds? What, what if I take them? Or, you know, um, what were some of the other ones? You know, some bonkers kind of ideas. And he said, I used to think that these people were just nuts. He said, and then my brother got um, glioblastoma, you know, which is a killer. It's one of the worst cancers he can get. Uh, and he said, and then I found myself on, on Googling Mexican clinics. You know, and he said, when you've got nothing, literally nothing else, you will you will consider anything. So I think there's a there's a really interesting thing about how our approach should be towards people who are, let's say, on the edges of legality or or they are they're they're stretching the bounds of regulation. And I'm not saying that we should just go, yeah, whatever you like, you know, biohackers. The guy that I mentioned in the book was was literally injecting himself with it with all the DNA that that he that he'd made himself, and he was doing it on a live live stream YouTube, you know. And you kind of think, whoa, I don't think that's a very good idea. But he just said it's my body; I, I choose to do it. So you know, 
finding that balance is really difficult. There's a there's a guy in London called Tim Omer, and Tim's got uh, type one diabetes, and he could not find a continuous glucose monitor that was less than five thousand dollars. And he's, he happens to be a, um, an app designer, and he thought, well, how, how difficult can it be? So he, he created his own and then made that information available to a group of parents. They're called Night Scout. They're a global network of, of parents who want their kids to be able to go on sleepover parties, but, but you know don't want them going into a coma. And they now have these adult parties where they go around and they show how you can make your own and they do it and they're they're facing all sorts of pressure from the big pharmaceutical companies to stop doing it and their hashtag is we're not waiting and you can see why you know they're, they're not waiting until there's an affordable option when they know they can do it themselves and they're willing to take that kind of risk and so i kind of think Okay, there's a number of ways we can deal with this wave of what I call mass ingenuity. You can try and stop it, bad idea. You can ignore it, really bad idea. Or you can try and work with it, you know, and, and that's, that, that's the argument in the book that I have. Find ways to work with these user innovators, because in some cases, like Procter & Gamble, it can save your company. They were, they were on the point of extinction Procter and Gamble but once they threw out the call far and wide anybody who's got an idea bring it to us we'll 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 put you in on the royalties now they changed their motto to proudly found elsewhere which I think is fantastic you know and it saved it saved the company so I think you, what you have to do is to find a way to incorporate it um it, it, it's a tricky thing to do that because if these communities suspect your motives, I don't know if you can remember when Rupert Murdoch bought MySpace, which was you know a little place for unsigned bands. He just thought, oh, I can buy that, and then I'll, I'll have all these bands and make money off. And, but but they just went, no, if if that's what you're doing, we'll go elsewhere. And of course they did. I kind of think the same could happen now with Twitter, the way Elon Musk is behaving. They, they'll find other, you can't upset those communities. Once you lose the trust of those communities, they'll never give you it back. And so I think it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic that goes on between what I call the producers and the user innovators. Yeah, right. Absolutely, and and yeah, there there are just there are many similar examples, aren't there? Where where the systems that we have in place are stifling user innovation at the moment, and if we can figure out how to unleash it. Um, then yeah, it just seems like a really smart way to go. So, so there's somebody who, who you mentioned quite a few times throughout the book, Eric von Hippel. Yes. Um, can you talk to me about about him and sure. and his thinking? Because he was he was really instrumental. Whilst I was putting those ideas together um, to begin with, his his work. He's at MIT, and um, he he's the first person who came up with the notion of user innovation. And um, he, now I think it was probably about 15 years ago when he discovered that the more he dug into this, the more he realized it, it was it was not this thing that happened in the shadows. It was happening everywhere. It just wasn't being recognized. And he did a study which showed that something like 53% of all new products and services are created by the users themselves. 
So, you know, mobile banking in Africa, it was it was not invented by banks. It was invented by people who who bought um, essentially they bought tokens, which they could then use to, to transfer money. And so there are so many examples, you know, the skateboard, the World Wide Web is is created by its users. And so there are just so many examples where this has happened. And, and Eric was the first one who saw what was going on and said, we really need to, to look at this because it's interesting. It's interesting how these people operate. And um, there was a few people that I mentioned in the book who who had studied the kind of ethics and, and the, the kind of motivations behind them. Because I think it is fascinating when you look at the the phenomenal growth of social movements in the last 10 years, there've been more social movements than in the previous hundred and they've learned from one another. And I think that's the interesting thing. So they're now far more effective than they were, than their predecessors were. So Extinction Rebellion learned from Occupy, you know, and, and they, they share that wisdom and that knowledge. And I think it's just, there's a fascinating dynamic that when people try to step in and like the two Steves did at Apple, the community will very quickly suss you out. And so what I tried to do in the book was to say, listen, if you're trying to turn your organization into a more dynamic place, place where innovation flourishes, then, then build, build those communities. But, but there's a few ground rules that these communities seem to have, you know, everyone thought that hackathons happened because you know, pimply 16-year-olds wanted a slice of free pizza. It, it's not. They they wanted the social experience of learning with other people. And you just have to understand what's driving these people because if you try to bring it into your workplace and, and you haven't thought that through and you, you don't walk the walk, then people will very quickly see through you. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. And so... So before we get before we get into the thing of like applying these ideas to education, um, I just wanted to see if we can draw on some examples from other organisations. So you did this sort of tour of the world, but also a bit of a survey. So you've been and visited lots of these different organisations. You mentioned the WD40 organisation, which was interesting. I didn't know anything about them. That there was like there was WD40 was just like the fortieth iteration. Like WD39 wasn't any good. <laughs> and then it was just like a one product organization for years, wasn't it? And then they suddenly started innovating. So it might be that you want to draw on them. There was also on a, from a totally different sphere. There was an, there was an, a, an example that stood out from, to me, at least from the book of the, the act up campaign. This sort of, you talked about this inside outside um, approach. Uh, this was around uh, like people, people who were, who were HIV positive in the 80s, who started taking matters into their own hands and sort of um, and had had this incredibly effective campaign. Um, and maybe there are other examples. You talk about co-op, the cooperativism, sorry, the cooperative movement, um, and lots and lots of other examples of this. So I wonder if, like, what would be some of your favourites, just to sort of to flesh out yeah. how this idea plays out in the in the in the world beyond education. Well, let's 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 deal with the first one that you mentioned, WD forty, because I educators are horrified when I say to them, I think this is the, the the most effective learning environment I've ever been in. And they kind of look at me askance and they go, Well, 
they've only ever made one thing, but actually they've, they've, they have now diversified, but it's still, it's basically variations on a the theme. But the, the problem was that that one thing was just so phenomenally successful that um, people had, became, had become afraid to take risks and afraid to innovate. And um, Gary Ridge, who, who became the, the CEO, um, he always said that, you know, it was a great irony that well, here was this company that actually celebrated failure in its title. Because as you rightly said, it was the 40th attempt before they got it right to create this lubricant. Um, then had become so risk averse. And so he thought, I, I have to change this. But but how do I do that? Because they were the company basically was sitting on a river of money. You know, all of the the profits that it was making were, were just given back to shareholders. It wasn't um, there was nothing else to spend it on. So Gary decided that he would create this culture whereby he banned the word failure. And if someone came into his office and said, "Oh, Gary, I've screwed up," he would say, "No, no, you haven't." He said, "You've just had a learning moment." And all I ask is that you share that learning moment with everybody else. And then we'll all know about it. And hopefully none of us will make that mistake again. And he said it took a long time because people were suspicious. You know, is this a trap? Am I going to get caught out? Um, but but eventually it, it did transform the, 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 the culture of the organization. He also put in a lot of scaffolded learning opportunities for people. Um, and it, it is an incredible organization that, um, you know, has become this global phenomenon. Everyone has a kind of WD-40 under the sink. Um, and there are something like, even though when it was just one product, there were 2,000 applications of that product, including some people who think they can cure arthritis by spraying WD-40 on the joints. <laughs> So that, that, that double, was, is that Donald Trump by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it, doesn't it? So that was one kind of you know example of a big multinational conglomerate. The one that I really liked, um, uh, and I, I, I kind of told the story at some length, only because the founder of the organisation has such a fascinating backstory himself. But in London, there's an organisation called Repowering London. It's a co-op. And they work in these the, the kind of housing estates, um, social housing, um, in, in start off in South London, but they're now all over. And they also have taken over um, overground uh, stations to produce food and they use solar power. Now, they, they've got this beautifully circular model whereby the, the young people who live there who are often unemployed, little prospects, they learn how to construct solar panels, which then get put on the flat roofs of these big housing complexes. They generate all their own power. They, they now generate a surplus. It's a community investment opportunity for people. So it, it, it brings back a very, very small return but the community itself is investing into it. Young people are being trained to, 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 to find jobs. But the story that really tickled me about that was they, they were having a meeting and someone said, you know, we are, make, we are generating a surplus here, but whilst we're doing really well, my uncle, who's, who's half a mile away, he, 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 he can't afford his energy. And they said, uh, 
why can't I give my surplus to him? And they said, well, it just can't be done. There's no, there's no physical way of doing it. And they said, well, let's find a way to do it. And they, they then started working with the university, which is what I mean about, you know, don't try and ignore these communities, work with them. And they are now trialing the world's first peer-to-peer energy trading platform. So they can now, they've got proof of concept. So if I make a surplus on my energy, I can gift it to someone else and it'll, 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 you know, they'll be getting free energy as it were. It's a, it's an example of that kind of ingenuity. And, and of course I found it and wrote about it ages before Putin decided that energy was going to become this, you know, really scarce commodity. I think it's going to be really fascinating to see the development of those kind of cooperatives, not just in energy, but in all kinds of areas around the world. Because, you know, I, I cited the Rochdale Pioneers as the, the example of the learning co-op, and their, their principles of operation are really still, I think, the, the kind of guiding principles for most of those user innovator communities. So I think we'll, you know, a 3D printer, James, it's, it's $200 now. So it's nothing. So this guy in Melbourne called um, Matt Botel, he was making prosthetic limbs because he thought it was obscene that people who were demining um, uh, places that had experienced warfare, you know, there's probably millions of mines now in the Ukraine. So they'll be facing this, but they were losing limbs and then they were having to pay fortunes to get these prosthetic limbs. So Matt realized you could make them for like, I think it was $15, $20. It was, it was nothing. Uh, so he started building them. And then when COVID happened, he he couldn't get the parts. And so he thought, well, I don't need the parts. All I need to do is to put the designs for the parts because pretty much anyone can get access to a 3D printer now. So he charges a dollar and you get the design for the, the prosthetic limb. And essentially you or your local school or university can print off as many as you need. That's that's an example, I think, of 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 the ingenuity that you know COVID accelerated. It was already there, but I think COVID has accelerated. And I the question I raised in the book was, will we now see uh, 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 in it that kind of ingenuity happening at scale? Because the the, the pattern of these, these user innovator communities is, you know, some guy in a shed makes something. And it works for him. End of story. He doesn't think, oh, I could make more of these, or I've got friends who could use this. They don't. It, it's not. It, it's met the needs. That's it. It's when you get people like Yvonne Schoenard, who eventually ended up giving Patagonia back to the earth, as he described it a few weeks ago. You know, he was a dirtbag. He calls these people dirtbags. He was climbing mountains and he was making the um, the the mountain mountaineering equipment, and he had friends who just said. I could really use some of that. So that's how he got into that, um, taking it to scale. But it's effectively, Patagonia is effectively a cooperative. And I think we'll see, or I hope we'll see, a lot more of these kind of cooperatives operating at scale. I mean, they already do. Some of the biggest banks in the world are cooperatives. But um, I, I, I would hope that we'll see more of it because 
they're, they're often driven by a sense of altruism, which is missing. Yeah, absolutely. I've thought this for a long time, that cooperativism is the answer that's been staring us in the face the whole time to the ex- the worst excesses of capitalism and the way that so many um, products are designed to fail, right? You know, the uh, what's it called? Intentional obsolescence. Built in obsolescence, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Built in obsolescence. Um, it's, you just see it so many times, don't you? Whenever I buy a product, I just think like, what's the what's the weak spot here? It looks robust. And sure enough, it becomes apparent before too long. And it's outrageous that that happens. And in design magazines, people talk openly about, you know, about planned obsolescence, don't they? But you can see how this 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 um this this idea of the power of us, this idea of widespread user innovation. You describe this in your book. You say that it's both an opportunity and a threat to the status quo. You say that on the one hand, it's an opportunity to rewrite all of the rules of business, education, politics, healthcare, like we've talked about today, social and personal development. But it's also a threat to to quote from the book again, because previously what has held back innovators is access to the twin gatekeepers of capitalism being access to capital and access to the means of production. And, you know, that's a that's a huge threat, therefore, isn't it, to very, very powerful, wealthy people who don't want to not be powerful or wealthy anymore. You know, I wonder if have you have you seen have you seen any examples of a kind of backlash against this kind of thing? Is of, of yes, like, well, like legislative approaches to stamping this this stuff out? Not not uh, legislative necessarily, although it, it it did result in a um an attempt to take these people to court. But I I, I cited in the book there's a there's a group of people that uh, they make me laugh because they're a little bit bonkers but they're called ikea hackers and they take IKEA oh, yeah. and then they throw away the book that little book <laughs> they think, what can i do with this and then when they've made some bizarre contraption they'll take a photograph put it up on the website there's about a hundred thousand people around the world it's quite a large community now when ikea found out about it they were furious and said, you know, we we invest vast amounts of money to make those user manuals accessible enough so that it always looks the same every time somebody makes that piece of furniture. And um, so they sent them a cease and desist and said, unless you stop, we're going to prosecute you. And um, and the community itself, it was one very brave Malaysian woman who led it, they said, uh, fine. That's what you want to do. We'll just go elsewhere. We can we can use anybody's furniture. We don't have to use yours. And you know they kind of thought for a while and said, "Hmm, okay. Well, look, how about we give you a, a page on our website where you could show your things off?" And they went, "Yeah, fine. Just just let us keep buying your stuff." And then it that led to you know a lot of interest in in the the idea of hacking furniture. IKEA have now brought out the first range of hackable furniture. So, you know, they 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 realized just in time what they were about to do. And, you know, you if you contrast that with, say, I don't know, the, the reaction of the, the record industry when it first heard that 13-year-olds were downloading music, you know, it tried to prosecute the hell out of them. And that, that was a dumb thing to do. And, you know, eventually people realize that they, they're just going to be painted as the villains. So it's not it's not going to help them long term. Far better to work with people. And, you know, I've, 
I've heard Mark Kermode talk about this in the film industry that says, you know, if people want to stream a film, they can do it legally or illegally. Why not make it possible and easy for them to do it legally? And that's, of course, what Netflix have done. Right. Absolutely. So that's OK. That's interesting. So the the threat and that this is what the corporate world does so well, isn't it? That it takes things that are that are deemed to be a threat to it or that are deemed to be countercultural. And then it just does a big yawn and a stretch and just goes, we'll have you as well. And, you know, so like the guy, what's he called? Kopernik, the guy who took the knee yeah. because his principal stand was then like, you know, a Nike advert, you know, talking about, you know, how to stand up for your principles or whatever. And just like everything endlessly gets uh, swallowed up by, by it. So I see. So, so, Maybe so. Maybe the corporate world, rather than fighting it, will find ways to creatively. Well, I think what what was what was interesting was that uh, last was it last summer? Yeah, I did a a, a conference um, of the Institute of Internal Communications people. Not not my normal audience, but I was describing in the book this phenomenal rise in social movements and the way in which. Um, the, corporations the smarter ones were trying to learn from those social movements as nike did you know and, and they've, they've given you know hundreds of millions of dollars to black lives matter now some people will say that's just a cynical ploy um whereas you know yvonne schoenard and patagonia they they've they've it's been hard to tell where where where, where they've stopped being a business and started being a, a social activism project so no one doubts um, Schoenard's uh, motives but I do think that the level of interest that they, they disregarded pretty much everything that I spoke about but they want to know more about that how how can we become more like a, a social movement um, and so I do think we are starting to see some of the smarter organizations are starting to say right how can we learn from these people how can we bring them in so that we can start to work with them because trying to outlaw them doesn't work. It inevitably backfires on you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so 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 let's start thinking then, if we may, to to sort of to to wrap this up. And then I'll ask you about a few a few quick fire questions, the rethinking yeah. education section. Um, thinking about how this might manifest in ed, in the world of education, and this we you could you could interpret this question. Um, in as many different ways as you like, what this could look like in terms of home education for unschoolers, for alternative schools to set up and do things in innovative ways for things that classroom teachers or teaching assistants or parents can do, whatever it might be. But so, so you end the you end the book with a bit of a survey of of um, where this is happening uh, within the field of education, and so so what what do you see as being the most promising? Uh, avenues that have been explored so far or that potentially have yet to be explored in terms of applying these ideas within education? Well, let's let's start close to home um, because one of my favourite, um, well, it's a, it's a multi-academy trust now, but it, uh, the XP schools that um, are based around Doncaster, because I think they, they are the canary in the coal mine, which was, we're seeing, I mentioned this briefly earlier, that a lot of these tech entrepreneurs are bringing a, a startup mentality to school. And it's some people find it incredibly liberating, others find it, you know, um, a threat. 
Um, but if you talk to Gwyn, Gwyn Apari, who is the CEO of, of, of XP, he has essentially said to his educators, you know, you can organize this whichever way you want. Um, if we want to, to do things, you know, give give our kids treats, if we want to find, you know, trips and expeditions that they can go on, then we'll have to save some money elsewhere. It's up down to you guys how you use the budget. When I when we ask uh, schools and colleges to to carry out a cultural audit, quite often the the area that comes out lowest in terms of the culture of the school is autonomy. You know, and that's not that surprising. I guess people think we we can't make decisions; the government won't let us. Um, I think some of it, frankly, is the Stockholm syndrome. They can; they just have had years where they couldn't. And now they don't know what to do with that kind of freedom. But it, it takes those kind of Christopher Pommering of Learn Life in Germany is another example. We're starting to see them now around the world. People who have um, built successful tech um, knowledge-based companies who are now applying that startup culture to, to schools. And I personally find it really exciting because they're, they're breaking down the model. You know, they're saying, why has it got to be so hierarchical? You know, why 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 do you have to have all of these stages of management? Um, so I think that's that's really interesting what they've done. But I also think that um they they and they didn't find it easy, you know, coming starting up a new school in a place like Doncaster, um, especially one that sort of felt a bit hippy dippy to a lot of people, because you know, their motto is above all compassion, which I think is just wonderful. I think it's such a beautiful motto. And, you know, like every time I go there, I end up in tears. It's just such a moving, powerful space. Yeah, I've been I've been myself and and the, I spoke on a recent episode. I've, I've had Andy Sprakes on the podcast before. Oh, great. Um, and, I, and I also recently went and visited and then I did a podcast discussing that. And we talked about how it really does move you to tears, that place. There's something about it that just gets you in the gut, which is interesting in itself because schooling is usually such a sort of the cerebral thing isn't it you thought sort of thinking about learning and cognition and um you know just like how do you measure what a school is you look at the exam results and what have you and there's something about that 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 just plugs straight into your heart it's, it's phenomenal what they're doing right i think some of that is um uh, to do with the origins of 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 the idea which is that they they were in um they went across to visit schools in california and it was schools that I'd come across, and um, I organised some study trips to a place called High Tech High. And um, it, the, the, these schools are places where allowing kids to show their emotions is is not frowned upon; it's encouraged. Uh, and I think you know we've become terribly—it's um, very British, isn't it? You know that that we we think no, don't 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 cry. We'll, we'll do anything to, to stop these kids from crying, crying publicly. But what's been interesting is that I came across a quote from um, a researcher called Helen Imodino-Yang, and she has proven that, she's a neurobiologist, and she's proven that it is neurobiologically impossible for people to learn something deeply, sorry, to learn, yeah, to learn something deeply that they don't care about. In other words, you know, you, there has to be some engagement of emotion if you want that 
learning experience to last. So why don't we do more of it? You know, when I go to XP, I regularly see kids, you know, crying in front of the others because because they've done a really nice thing for them and it moves them. And that's that's a good thing. It's it's bizarre that we find that a, a, a thing not to be. Um, yeah, not I, proud of. I agree. She's. I've also had Mary Helen Imodino Yang on the on the podcast oh, before. Wow. Um, so I know her work well, and I, and oh, I, she, I agree. She, she's she's phenomenal. But just on that, if I if I may, I'd like to share something that happened recently. Um, so so um, a few years ago, I wrote this book, and it was based on this on this very long project that I did for my PhD, which is about learning to learn. And there's lots of overlap with with this, the kinds of things that happen at XP school and other schools like it. Um, where we were doing lots of project-based learning, lots of sitting around in circles and talking about our feelings, for example. And anyway, so we wrote a book about it and it came out in 2018 or something. And by then, the, the culture had shifted completely in, the, in, in England, certainly, where things are not pointing in the direction of self-regulation and self-directed learning. It's very much about sort of austere like, approaches to behavior management and direct instruction from the front of the room and the knowledge-rich curriculum and stuff. And it's just moved in a very different direction. And so there's not very much happening in this country around the areas of sort of learning skills and learning to learn and self-regulated learning and what have you. Currently, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it's going to come back. It's just a matter of time. So, so since then, we've been working with schools, mainly internationally, because there's not much doing in this country. We've worked with some schools in this country, SEMH schools, uh, mainly. Um, that's um, social and emotional and mental health uh, issues for those people who don't like it, an acronym. Um, and, and so we've been working with this one school in South Africa, um, and they, they only got in touch with us this year, in about March this year, the head teacher reached out and was like, you know, he was describing a very, very challenging situation. The school was, you know, facing lots of lots of financial issues, social issues, gangs and drugs and what have you, you know, much more so than than we would experience in this country for the most part. Um, and we didn't really think it was probably going to happen because we just thought it was just too much of a challenging environment to do this kind of change. But they went for it in a big way. Um, and so we worked with that school very intensively for about three months. And then they launched this learning skills curriculum uh, in July. And then it was the summer holidays and we didn't really hear from them for a while. And then we, we caught up with them last month. And it was absolutely phenomenal. And the, the, the teachers, these learning skills teachers, basically sort of took it in turns to pass this laptop around the room and they each just sort of talked about what a difference this thing had made to them and to their kids. And there was one guy in particular who said, well, there was a few of them who they were talking about the, the outpouring of emotion from the students. This one guy, they'd done the gingerbread activity where you have a gingerbread person and they'd identified a bunch of different emotions, happy, sad, angry, frustrated, confused, whatever, um, and they they allocated each of them a, a different color, and then they had to draw on the gingerbread man. Where do, where on their bodies do these do these emotions manifest? You know, and these kids just started talking about their feelings through this, and they were. He said they were all crying. There was like thirty six kids who were all in floods of tears, and the, and then we spoke to the school counselor next, who was saying that that young people who um who were not really willing to disclose things privately in a one-to-one -one session with a school counsellor were disclosing things within the context of these learning skills lessons because they saw it as a safe space 
that the, the, the teachers, but also really the young people themselves had made it a safe space for them to talk about their feelings. And it wasn't just about the emotional side of things. They were also simultaneously saying that, that you know, these kids who had never done any work before, who were always had their barriers up when they were at school, all of a sudden they were handing in, you know, five page assignments and they were just, you know, taking pride in their work. And what was astonishing was that this had happened in such a short space of time. It was, it was, you know, within a, the space of two weeks, they could see this. But I was really, it's, to, to, for me, with like watching it and taking part in this conversation, but since I've shared this video, it's online now, I've shared it with some people, but in particular, this bit about where they were talking about 36 kids crying, you know, the, 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 to the English sensibility, oh, yeah. thing about that, that's like, well, that's horrifying. That just sounds like a group, a group therapy session that's out of control. And, you know, are you, you know, probably with real, you know, uh, sort of safeguarding concerns from some quarters saying like, you know, is that teacher really qualified to be able to hold that space yeah. where you've got all of these people being very vulnerable all of a sudden? You can understand that, and we, you know, so much of what we, of what we, of what happens here is sort of seen through that safeguarding lens. Um, but it was just, I, I just thought it was a fascinating thing to notice that in other cultures, in other countries, like you were just saying, um, kids emote <laughs> and it's okay. You know, it's actually a kind of amazing. That's a lovely story, James. Really lovely. Yeah, it really, it really is. It's an incredible thing. Yeah. Thank you. So, so yes, yeah, so, so you were talking about XP as yeah, an example, yeah. as an example of the kind, and 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 kids were emoting there, and they have the the crew is their big thing, isn't it? And they have these like long morning sessions, forty five minutes every morning of essentially checking in with each other emotionally, as well as you know, have you got all your equipment ready and stuff? And so they're, they're, there's this sort of family, very very strongly pastoral element to what they're doing, and and. Another example, and again, it, it involves emotion, but, but this time from adults, which is um, before COVID happened, me and my wife uh, often used to organise um, study tours of Silicon Valley, not because it's the best education system in the world, it's not, but I just think they, are, they were doing some really interesting things there. And so we went, we came across a school called New Roads, and it's an independent school, but it's... Um, because it's it's based in Santa Monica, so it services the the film and media industry, and some of its parents are incredibly wealthy, but it gives away half of all of its money to get scholarships for kids from places like Compton or Watts that would never be able to afford a, a, a an independent education. As a result, when you go around the the, the premises. You know, they're teaching in porter cabins, basically. The only nice building is the Steven Spielberg Theatre because he, he sent his kids there. And um, and at the end of the first time I ever went there, I had a bunch of Australian teachers, and they said, oh, we've got a little performance for you. And they, they we went into the theatre, and the kids did this dance thing, which was based on Masala um, uh, Yusuf's um, autobiography. But there was it wasn't just dance. There was some spoken word poetry, and there was this young girl who, you know, they later told me she she spent the first two years of her life as a as an elective mute when she came to the school. She was one of those students. Normally, you can't tell which are the rich kids and which are the poor kids. There's just no way of knowing. But she was one of those that, that came from Watts, and uh, you know, 
a mother was single mother was actually a teacher herself but didn't have much money um and by the end all of our group were just in floods of tears it was really powerful because they, they these kids were basically saying you know unlike malala we 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 take our education for granted and they they got the teachers up on stage and it just ended up being this really big kind of celebration it was beautiful when i wrote about it in the book i had no idea that one of those kids that i watched perform would later become kind of very prominent but her principal wonderful guy called lutherne williams he contacted me and said um are you going to watch joe biden's inauguration and i said yeah of course and he said, well, make sure that you do, because one of our students is reciting a poem. Oh, and the poet. What's her name? Amanda Gorman. Amanda Gorman, her name Amanda Gorman. yeah, yeah. And I thought, wow. First of all, you've broken the model of, of independent schools, you know, because you, I, I didn't know any other independent school in the world that would say half of our money is going to go on scholarships, because in their words, they want to create the Petri dish that America could be. Mm. But, but then secondly, it's a kind of school that they, their intention is to make students, um, so, turn them into social activists. And, and every single one of those students is passionate about something. They use that experience at school to discover who they are and who they want to be. And it is a wonderful environment. And so when I saw her recite that poem, The Hill We Climb, I just thought, and she went to Harvard, you know, they, they, it's not an either or, you know, it, it it just drives me nuts that schools kind of listen to those stories that I tell them and then they go, yeah, well, you know, I, I bet their exam results are crap. And I go, no, it, it, you're not forsaking good academic outcomes because you want to create this really lovely warm environment the two go together and and the examples that i use throughout the book in, in terms of the school examples they're, they're all phenomenal cultures caring places which also happen to be getting great exam results it's just that's not their number one priority they, mm -hmm. their number one priority is to create as as andy sprakes i think has often said people who are citizens of the world. And that's what they're trying to do. The, the exam results are just an added bonus, really. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah, thank you. And so so let's get into these final three questions then. We'll, we'll yeah. do this as a whip round. Whip round. What's it called? Speed speed round. What's it called? Whiplash. Speed. Whiplash. <laughs> Try not to give you whiplash. Um, <laughs> right. So the three questions. Quick fire. Okay. Quick fire Quick round. Fire. There we go. <laughs> um, so positives. You talked about this just now, really, but like, like, let's see one more. Like, so, so this is positives, challenges, and solutions, uh, and and maybe looking at like this through a lens of user innovation, right? If we're thinking about how do we unleash user innovation within education, so first of all, positives. What are we getting right currently? Uh. You'd have to define we, James. Do you mean in the UK? Oh, right. Okay. So I'm gonna just I'm gonna fudge that and just say however you want to interpret it. So so what what do you see within the education system that you think is really good that you with regard to user innovation? Um oh gosh, it's really hard to answer that without appearing to be negative. Uh, what I see is 
teachers who have been stretched beyond the limits of, of, of what you should ask anybody to do, who still keep showing up every morning. Um, and I think that has been, um, what's the word, exploited for too many years now. And, and we really need to make sure, well, pay them, pay them properly and, and reduce the workload. Um, those schools that have done that, and I did mention the, the kind of tech startup schools as being examples, those, those that really thought, you know, we've got to give these people time um, that we, we want them to be thinkers as well as deliverers of curriculum. They've 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 shown that it can be done, um, but but that needs more autonomy, and schools need to grasp that autonomy. Sorry, that's a very long answer. No, no, it's fine. And actually, that links back. <laughs> it's always the way with this quick fire thing that it never ends up very quick fire. This links back to something that you mentioned in the book, just to expand this a little further. But you were talking about uh, Desi and Ryan and their self determination theory, you know, about um, competence, relatedness, and autonomy, these sort of these three conditions that need to be met in order for people to, to thrive. And in that section of the book, you say you should, we should, in some sense, we should file this under no shit, Sherlock, right? <laughs> that, you know, if you give people a little bit of, bit of ownership over what they're doing, you help them feel good about it and you help them to connect with other people. Why are we having to have this conversation? Like this should be obvious. But then you go on to say, and yet it's a stunning fact that more organizations have not yet learned this lesson and organizing their 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 ways of, of working in a way that takes account of these insights into like how to intrinsically motivate people essentially um and it's it's essentially because they don't trust their own people they don't trust that if they give them that autonomy they won't screw up and that that, that filters down i you know schools like xp they work because they give their kids a huge amount of responsibility because they know they'll rise to the task. Uh, but but there are some, several schools, I won't mention any of their names, where they just don't do that because essentially I think they think basically the kids are going to screw up and failure is not an option in those kind of schools. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there is a culture of that and that lack of trust. The last person that I had on the podcast was Sophie Christophe, and she talked about the use of overwork as a control mechanism, right? That if you just sort of pile lots and lots of work onto people, then they're not going to to That's cause cool. to cause too many problems, you know. Um, about that. Yeah, that is which is slightly more of a conspiratorial take on on it. But you know, I think that I think that the evidence is there that that overwork is endemic. Um, you know why is that? Is it is it in some people's interests to uh, you know who benefits from teachers being overworked? It's not teachers, not their kids. It's not you know their work life balance or their kid. You know the teachers' families, but oh. somebody's benefiting from that, or else it wouldn't be happening. So let's just leave that as a little conspiratorial, yeah. uh, open ended question. Um, all right. So the next one. Uh, you were saying that the, that first question. You were finding it hard not to not to to dip into criticism. So now let's let's look at the challenges. What are the major challenges that we face if we if we're thinking about how how can we unleash this latent potential, this cognitive surplus that exists within the teaching profession, within the student body, potentially among the parent and carer community as well. What are the major challenges that we face in in unleashing this potential? Would you say? For me, the number one uh, obstacle 
is standardized testing. If we could rid ourselves of our obsession with national standardized testing, then I think everything else would change because it all kind of works toward it. Curriculum works toward it. The pedagogy works toward it. If, if there wasn't this specter of, you know, terminal exams where you're going to compare one kid against another and we could find another way to do it. Um, and that's why I, I'm an advisor to the Mastery Transcript uh, Consortium in, in based in America, but it's a global thing now, which is now starting to say there's another way to recognize what kids are good at, what, what a student, the talents that they possess. But it's 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 been a real struggle for them. And politically, it, it holds such sway because of PISA and all of those. You know, we all want to see how do we benchmark against other countries? How do we benchmark against other schools? How do we benchmark against other teachers? And, and it just clogs up any sense of innovation. So if we could if we could just get rid of that obsession that we have with nationalized standardized testing, then I think everything else would change. But I but I don't know when that's going to happen. Well, it's a it's a really difficult problem that because I think that lots of people would agree that that um, that that's the case. Certainly, young people complain about the pressure of exams. Not very many people are, are a fan of it, but people often describe it as the least bad thing the least bad way to assess kids that, that coursework for example uh, or portfolios of evidence it's very easy for wealthy parents to game the system by getting their kid private tuition to help them to make an amazing portfolio or to help them over the line with their coursework or whatever and so people often say that the that they agree that exams are problematic um, and that they sort of distort everything that happens don't they like you know everybody's sort of in in hypnotized by this tractor beam from about age four kids learn about the gcse this thing through which all people must pass and be judged accordingly um but figuring out an alternative um is no picnic it seems no, it's not. but what, one of the things that drew me towards the the mastery transcript was that you know it was it was using the technology to to provide a much richer picture and it was it was one of the few examples now i'm not saying it's the answer there's there's lots of other experiments now starting to take place around the world but it was one of the few examples that had said you know the way employers keep saying leadership skills are really important and collaboration skills and being able to work in a team and being able to take constructive and, and negative criticism and and not fall apart um what, what, why why can't we assess that and and it does that and it, it it doesn't deny the academic work but it also says you know this student has done particularly well has gained mastery in you know communication skills in public speaking all the things that for years we've been saying are important employers have been telling us are important we still are not recognizing that through our standardized testing regime. So you kind of think, surely anything's going to be worth a try compared to the existing. Mm -hmm. It's it's it it it's the lowest common denominator that we've currently got. It's yeah. And for what it's worth. Uh, sorry, one, one final question. Go on. From me, anyway, to you, which is 
since you, I presume you've got a degree, but since you completed your university education, has anyone ever asked you to show your degree? Um, so you have to show it when you go for a job. So I'm trying to remember. I work for myself now. But when you when you go for a when you go for like uh, to become a teacher trainer, sorry, to to train as a teacher, you have to show it at your interview. I guess it's the gateway to that. But I, em I, employers, I at, at the Liverpool Institute, I appointed hundreds of people, and we 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 asked for people who had a degree. But we actually never said, and you must bring it along because we want to check. All you right. We just took them on their word. But I just think it's it's really interesting that in real life, people judge us by the projects that we've done, by our portfolio. What have you done? And there are some universities now in the States, particularly the States, but others, who are saying, you know, your portfolio really matters. We want to see what you've done outside of school. That's how Avi Schiffman got into Harvard. He could never have got in on his national standardized test. And I just think that's how you're judged for the mm. rest of your life. You're going to be judged on that. Not that you got a grade point average of 1.4. Right. Lovely. Yeah, yeah. And another another former guest on the podcast was a guy called Peter Gray, um, who wrote a book called Freedom to Learn. And he's sort of really interested in like democratic schooling and the Sudbury Valley model of schooling, yeah. which is sort of yeah. like the American counterpart to Summerhill. And um we've plowed those that that furrow many times on this podcast. And 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 lots of people assume that if you go to a school where there's no standardized testing, like how are you going to get into college? How are you going to get a job? And all of the research that has been done on alumni of those of those institutions find that they do get a job and they do get into college. And as you say, it's on the strength of the projects that they've done and the things that they can talk about as passion projects. And I think the recruitment people Really welcome that, don't they? If you've got a, if you've got a pile of CVs that are all very similar with personal statements, and then you've got somebody who repeatedly phones you up and says, "Just give me five minutes of your time, and I'll talk to you about why this is so important to me," you'd be like, "Oh my goodness!" You know, there's a, a bit of life in this one. You know, working at a performing art, and I realise we're we're extending the, the length of this podcast. There's, there'll be nobody listening by this point. <laughs> working uh, at a, a performing arts institute was really fascinating because. Over the years, we saw what happened to those alumni who, you know, didn't get work in the Performing Arts Institute, but did very well. And I thought, what is it about, say, actors that makes them highly employable or musicians that makes them really highly employable in other fields? And then I came across just recently uh, some research which uh, analysed 20,000 new hires in all sorts of industries and corporations around the world, and looked at why the ones that worked and the ones that didn't work. 80% 80, 80 of those 20,000 new hires didn't work. But they didn't not work because the skill set was lacking. They didn't work because the mindset wasn't right. So there were people who couldn't take direction. There were people who really struggled with their motivation. There were people who wouldn't wouldn't work well as part of a team you know the 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 deficit that employers are spotting is is as much a mindset only 11% of those hires didn't work because they didn't have the right skills we are 
focused completely on developing skills and not on cultivating the right kind of mindset. And that was the thing about those actors. I used to say, actors, I just love them because you could say to them, come on, everybody, let's jump off this cliff. And they'd go, yeah. You know, there was just this desire to, 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 to do a good job that these students had. And, and, and they had a really positive mindset. I just think we've underestimated it for years. Yeah, yeah, right, absolutely. And, and just to come back to the to the uh, exam thing, if I may, I don't think that it's actually that hard to think about how to innovate in that area. Because people often say that they try to frame it as like, well, should we just get rid of exams then? Should we just do away with exams? And actually, exams are really useful, right? Yeah. Like you, you want to have people who are qualified at things. But if you made them optional right, is one idea to make it so that you don't have to do it. A bit like you don't have to do a driving test. You don't have to do your grade one to one, five, eight, whatever music uh, yeah. test. Um, it doesn't sound like you did graded assessments. As you I would... did when I went to college. Oh, you did when you got to grade, right, when you got to college. I, I just felt I had to prove something, but it was, it was, it was stupid. I got the grade seven and then my head of music said, I think you can stop now. <laughs> there you go. Right. So you were, you were playing the game, but you didn't need to yeah. do that in order to spend 15 years as a professional oh, musician. Yeah. Um, and like, and, and likewise, to, again, from music grades, they have different grades. So you've got grade one maths, grade two maths, grade three maths, grade four maths. Why can't we have that? Um, in in maths, why can't we have it in uh, in geography and art and P and all the rest of it? Why do we have to have this? That like you mentioned the word high stakes earlier. Why did it have to be this bar that some people get over and some people don't? Why can't people just choose to go? Do you know what? I got to level three in geography, and I'm okay with that. Like I'm not really that into geography, so I'm going to go and do something else now, and you know maybe get to grade five or six in that, or maybe not, and try something else again. And so you just make it, you take the pressure off and just allow it to become a landscape that people can explore at, at whatever level is, is you know, suited to them. That feels like it wouldn't be that hard to do logistically. And it seems like it would get rid of that whole sort of tension. Yeah. So one of the schools I haven't mentioned, it was, was down in, um, in the deep South in America. And it's, um, uh, it, it, it was an example of what Bill Gates has been funding, which is a thing called the early college. So these students, sorry, it's my dog outside. Um, the, the students are spending some of their time in it's studying for a degree. They're getting credits while still at school. And then the rest of the time that they're, they're attending the school as, as per normal. And they operate uh, on a mastery system which is you tell us when you think you've you've acquired this. And what I've found fascinating about them is the highest level of mastery you can have is when you can teach somebody else that thing. So whatever that the piece of skill or knowledge is, that, that you can gain the highest level when you've done that. But it's a case of you take the, those stages of um, mastery up until the point when it suits you, just as you've described, and you can stop at any given point. But, but that we 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 just don't get that concept of mastery, and yet it is how the rest of the world, the rest of our lives operate upon. You know, mm. once once you've done something, doesn't mean that you all have to be the same age. You know, we're obsessed with this idea of year of manufacture. Why couldn't you just do assessment when you feel like you're ready for it? 
music to my ears. And so I think you'll agree we're nailing this quick fire round. <laughs> so the, the final one is um fixes. How what what do you feel like is the, the best leverage that we have? What are the pressure points where where if you're listening to this as a as a teacher or a school leader and you think, yeah, do you know what? I want to find ways to to sort of to relieve some of this top-down pressure to allow the, the young people to to innovate to to co-create to collaborate with one another potentially with teachers with other members of support staff what do you think we need to do next in terms of um fixing this situation to unleash user innovation in education i think we need more courageous leadership within schools um i understand that you know head teachers it's a thankless job these days and they've been battered um from pillar to post for the last 10 years um, but that's still no excuse. We've 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 got to recognise that they do have more autonomy than they think they have, but they have to be more courageous. I think we have to get. Um, I once asked Pazzy Salberg, a guy who wrote Finnish lessons, what 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 made the the English system so kind of um, entrenched in its ways, and he said, "Your problem is that." You, you still keep arguing about the purpose of education. He said, in, in Finland, we we all agreed on that years ago. So we just, we say to people, that's not up for debate now. Let's get on with how we do this. And he said, so you're, you're, you're kind of fixated upon structures and funding and all of those kind of things. Whereas he said, in Finland, we talk about pedagogy. So I think there's, the, there's a sense in which, I know Jim Knight talks about this a lot. There are aspects of, regulatory provision now which governments assume responsibility for which they don't need to we could give that to the chartered college or some other body we could put teachers more in control of their own destiny i don't know when we're going to get a government that's got the guts to do that because you know education ministers want to make a name for themselves they want to have more power not less but that's really holding everybody back because we, we, we do have this, you know, culture of compliance. So it's it's all of that. But I, I, I kind of think, you know, when I when I look at, and I gave a talk recently in, in Italy about this, and, and I just said, you know, at, at some point, we will have to change because our students will just walk with their feet. And we're seeing that right now. You know, I think someone said this close to a million kids who've not come back after COVID, well, but they're probably never going to come back. And that that number might only grow unless we start thinking of some more radical solutions. One of the things that featured in the book was KDHA, which is in Dubai, which is their kind of Ofsted, but they've created a model whereby a student can sign up at any up to four different schools. If they think the arts provision is really good in that school, they can just do arts there. Uh, similarly if it's maths or sciences but they can also if they were good at athletics or a gifted musician they can say I, I i i need time to do this and i want to be accredited on that so that is i think that's an attempt to say the system doesn't work we've got to allow kids now to hack their own education a lot more and i think we'll either do that with kids or they'll they'll take the ball home and, and walk away. And and so it's like when you as you were talking about towards the end of the book, you were you were sort of surveying all of these different and, and not just 
in education, but these other organizations, the Liga Foundation, is it yeah. in, in Cambodia and um and Patagonia, like you say, and all of these other organizations. And it really made me think of that um that quote. Was it by William Gibson? The the, the idea that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Um, and so, you know, there are there are models that we can incorporate and scale oh, up. Yeah. If you feel like you're overworked and stressed out, maybe you're not in the right place to do this at this point in time. But, you know, if you're if you do feel like you're able to take something on, you know, there, are, there there's lots of brilliant examples of innovative practice uh, within your book. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, James, because uh, for years I would give talks or run workshops and I, I knew uh, when I was in Australia, it was always the, the Brit who'd moved out there. But I knew that someone would come up to me and say, it's really interesting what you're talking about. And these schools sound fantastic. But what advice would you give for somebody who's working in a, in a, in a culture that just does not encourage that level of innovation? And, you know, for years, I used to make mealy mouth stems about, well, maybe you can get together with other colleagues and find a little safe space that you can start to take little risks and 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 prove and you know document the process. And now I just say to them, go, just find another school because life's too short. You're not going to change that culture on your own. You're too low down in the pecking order. Find another school because you're right. There are plenty of them out there. Yes, there you go. So, um, so the future is already here. What does the future hold for you? Is there is there a difficult third album on the horizon? <laughs> Don't ask that question. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm contractually uh, required to do another book. I, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, I don't know if I will. Um, my health's not been brilliant this last couple of years, but um, I also kind of think because the, the publisher said why don't you write a book about education and, and, and the choices our parents have got? And this part of me thinks, look, so many people have had a go at this. Valerie Hannon, Ken Robinson, you know, and not, not a lot's changed. So what difference would would would, would me um, uh, provide? So I don't know. Uh, if there's another kind of societal bubbling under trend that I start to see emerge, maybe I'll I'll... I'll be excited enough about that to do it um but you know like um I, it, it should be getting quicker because this will be my third time although it, the last two took three years each i maybe i can, I can get it down to two years i don't know <laughs> yeah right <laughs> well I'm, I'm, i know i'm I'm really bad at, at predicting how long it'll take the last book i thought it was going to be a six month project to turn my phd into something that was more readable and it took three years it nearly broke me yeah. Um, and I'm currently thinking this one, this book that I'm currently working on, I'm thinking, oh, it'll be done by Christmas. But actually, it's like near the end of November. <laughs> and uh, so um, these things take a little bit longer than you often expect, don't they? Absolutely. But um, yeah, I mean, I've got some thoughts. Maybe we'll have a chat offline sometime, but I've got some thoughts of like, I can see undercurrents happening. There's some really interesting things happening at the moment um, in education and, and uh, like alongside the education system, outside the education system in like the homeschooling movement and unschooling and people setting up their own little pop-up schools here and there that run along different principles that are sort of democratic and self-organizing and financially and viable. That, so yeah, there are one or two like place in Bedfordshire. There's, there's a number of these little radical models that are springing up. And I think they are, I think you're right. They're really interesting. 
Mm, I'll just yeah. get you to write it and then I'll take your name off the cover. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's a deal. Well, thank you, David, very much for uh, sharing your time and thoughts with me very generously this afternoon. It's lovely to lovely to meet you and to get to know you a little bit. Um, and um, yeah, is there anything that you'd like to to, to leave uh, to, as oh, a parting God, comment? No. Or is I, there... think I think I've rambled on enough. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for that. I'll I'll stick uh, a link to your website in the in the show notes if anybody wants to get hold of you following this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Time is a measure of change.